Our scripture today is from the 10th chapter of Mark, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. And for God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Uh, first of all, I want to say what a pleasure it is uh, for me to be here with you this morning. When I attended seminary, it was at Colgate-Rochester Divinity School, this wonderful merged seminary uh, of Baptist traditions, Episcopal traditions, and I had as many students who were Baptist and professors who were Baptist as uh, my fellow Episcopal students. So it's uh, wonderful being back with, with this many good Baptists again. In the Gospel lesson this morning, we have the, the familiar and, and rather difficult story of someone who chooses 
not to follow Jesus. In fact, it's the only time mentioned in all of the Gospels in which Jesus invites someone to follow him, and that person chooses not to do it. The story begins as a man approaches Jesus. Mark's Gospel that we, we heard uh, beautifully read this morning describes the man as being rich. The Gospel of Matthew says he is also young. The Gospel of Luke simply states he is young and a ruler. See, who said it? we Episcopalians don't know our Bible? So it's easy to see why over time this person came to be known as the rich young ruler, kind of taking this image from all three gospel stories. So this, this rich young ruler guy runs up to Jesus, ready and eager, and he asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And when the scriptures speak of eternal life, it, it means much more than just life after death. Eternal life in the scriptures is often about that quality of life that that we can experience here and now, this, this fullness of God's presence. It's very similar to what Jesus talks about uh, when he mentions the kingdom of God throughout his teachings. When Jesus says the kingdom of God, he's, he's not just talking about heaven. In fact, he's usually not talking about heaven or the afterlife. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is, is how God desires life, for be, life to be for all of us here and now. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is when God's justice and compassion and mercy and love is lived here and now, in this day, in our midst, in relationship with one another, in the community with one another. Jesus, for him, eternal life or the kingdom of God had as much to do with our lives before we die than after we die. So anyway, this man comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, tell me what I need to do for eternal life. And Jesus, the one who came to show us what God is like, first of all begins by directing the man's attention not to him, Jesus, but to God. No one is good but God alone. Then he tells the man what he already knows. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, honor your father and mother, and so on and so on. And the man replies, he has done all of these things, and I suggest that we be kind-hearted to this young man. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's take him at his word that he really has been basically a very good person, maybe even from his youth, as he tells Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he tells him sincerely, I've been doing all this. I really have for my whole life. And then in this, this wonderful little detail of the story, we're told that Jesus looks at this young man, looks at him, And he loves him. And I can picture Jesus looking into his eyes and his soul. Jesus must see who he is, must see what he is seeking. And this is what he tells the young man. There's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor. And then come and follow me. And at these words, the man is shocked. Other Bible translations that are also pretty accurate say, upon hearing these words, the man's face fell. And that's probably pretty accurate. He, he has been doing everything that a good religious person is supposed to have done. No adultery, no murder, no stealing, honoring your father and mother. And not just over the last week or 10 days, 
but since he was a kid. Isn't that enough? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And besides that, the man is obviously successful. He's got wealth, he's rich, he's got power, he's a ruler. And wealth and power were often considered, in Jesus' day, a sign of God's favor, just as some people see that today. Yet here is this message from Jesus. With all this man has done, all this man is, Jesus says there's something lacking. More is needed. Go sell what you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow. This is hard news. And when he heard it, of course the man's face fell. Of course he was shocked. Who would, want it, who would not be shocked if Jesus told that to us? And as the man walks away in sorrow and disbelief, Jesus looks around to his friends, and he adds one more difficult saying, how hard it will be for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, the disciples who have been taking all this in, they are also shocked. Their faces have probably also fallen. So Jesus repeats the line he just told them, maybe just to make sure his point gets across. He says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. In truth, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astonished, they're perplexed. And they ask one another, then who can be saved? A modern translation might read, holy cow, or holy camel, as may be the case. Who possibly has a chance of making it if it's this tough to get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus responds to them very clearly, my friends, thanks be to God, it's not up to you. If it were all up to you, it would indeed be impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. This, this is a tough story. It was for the young man. It was for the disciples. And if, if we let it, it can be a very difficult story for us, really. We, we, we don't really want to hear these hard words from Jesus. And when we do hear them, we aren't sure if we really want to believe them and go live them out. Maybe that's why Jesus had to say them twice, right in a row. Even the people who read the Bible, literally, they, they want to stay away from this one. I don't see many TV evangelists selling off their possessions, their fancy suits, the stadium-sized churches, the television camera, and then giving all that money away so they can go follow Jesus. I mean, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had been much more, much more reasonable about this? What if Jesus instead had stopped the young wealthy man before he turned and walked away and said, oh, I'm just kidding, come back here. Because you know, to be honest, young rich ruler, we could use someone like you in this congregation of fishermen and tax collectors. After all, you're rich. You're well-connected in the community. What church wouldn't want that? It would have been much easier if Jesus would have said, I'll tell you what, young man, this is what a good Episcopal Jesus would do. You just make a generous pledge once a year during our fall stewardship campaign. Then you can come follow, and we will be fine. So these, these are difficult words from Jesus. They're, they were hard back then. They were, and they're hard today. And, and we Christians, over, over the decades, over the centuries, have tried various ways to soften their impact on our lives. In my own tradition, I remember clearly, I once heard an Episcopal priest explain in his sermon on, on this very passage 
that Jesus' words to the young man were not necessarily literally true, but they were symbolically true. And to this day, I have no idea what he was talking about. Or there's that charming old fable, even told in a few biblical commentaries, that this is what it was. In the days of Jesus, says this old story, there was a low, small gate by which you could enter into Jerusalem. And this gate was called the Needle's Eye. Maybe some of you have heard this. And camels entering there at the gate, burdened down by heavy loads on their back, they could only pass through this gate and gain entrance to this low gate if they got down on their their camel knees and walked through the gate. Likewise, you and I can keep all our possessions on our backs as long as we kneel down on our knees from time to time in prayer. The truth is, this this story is is just made up. It's only a hundred or or so years old. Um, the story is, how do I put this biblically? It's it's camel done. Can can I say that in a Baptist church? Oh, okay. Jesus used this outrageous image of the camel, a real camel, and a needle's eye, a real needle's eye, to get his message across. Today, you might say, a a rich person entering into the kingdom of God is like, I don't know, a big SUV going through the mail slot in your house. The image is meant to startle us. It can't happen, so it seems. So what is it Jesus is asking of us? If this is really what he's saying, what is Jesus asking of us? And yes, I, I do believe part of what it's about is looking at what we have, including our wealth. But, but the story's not merely a renunciation of wealth and material possessions. I really don't think, honestly, prayerfully, I don't think God's desire for all of us today is by tomorrow to become homeless and unemployed be, because we've given everything away. I think God knows us. God knows many of us still need to make our house payments so our families have a place to live. We need to keep our jobs and have food in the cupboard so we can feed our families and clothe them and maybe even put a little something away from retirement. Not to do some of those things, to be honest, in this day and age would be irresponsible to our families, this church, and the world around us. I do believe this story really does have real impact, a real lesson to teach us even today. I think it reminds us, first of all, this is what it looks like to follow God. This is what it looks like to follow God. In one of his books in the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis tells the story of this young boy and girl. They are on this, this journey, this very difficult journey. They have been asked to take an important message to the king. And in doing this, in traveling to where they were to deliver this message, they go through day upon day of numerous hardships and danger. And they finally reach their destination. And as soon as they make it inside the castle gates and deliver this message, really, the very minute they complete their mission, the master of the house tells the boy and the girl about the next stage of their journey, and they are to continue on their mission right now. Right now. It means there will be no time to rest, no time to think about how tired you are, No time to reflect on how courageous and wonderful they have been up to that point. 
They simply have to go on. I think this is what it means to be a disciple. Jesus looked at this young man, and he did love him. And I'm sure he knew this guy had been doing a fine job, really. But that's not the end of the story. We're not called to just rest on what we have done so far. That's the spiritual life. Really, it goes all the way to the end. We know that. And a Christian cannot rest on the faith of their parents. That's helpful, yes. Or the faith of their grandparents, as helpful as that's been. Or all the traditions handed down to us. We can't even rest on our own accomplishments up to this point. All those things may be good and helpful and give thanks to God for them. But they can only take us so far. They're not meant to be the end of the story. And besides, all those accomplishments aren't why Jesus loves us anyway. That's what grace is about. Jesus simply loves us where we are and wants us to follow right from where we are, including here and now. C.S. Lewis uh, phrased it this way, The children in the story needed to learn this lesson that we all must learn, that often our reward for completing one brave and good task is that we, we will then be called to even a greater, more challenging adventure. Following Jesus always means going further, giving more, reaching out more, becoming more who God creates us to be. You've kept all the commandments since your youth. Good, good. That's a great start, Jesus is telling this young man. Now let's keep going. And there's another lesson from the story I think that it can teach us, both in Jesus' day and today. This rich young man, I think, and what we see him do, confronts us with the truth that, you know, we all have areas of our lives that we are reluctant to give to God. For the man in the story, there was a limit how much he was prepared to do. For you and me, we probably also have things we, we would rather not surrender to God. Like the rich young man, it may be our possessions or ambition in our career, or maybe we want to hold on to this image of what others think of us. And all these things may not be bad in and of themselves, but we get into trouble when we hold on to these things so tight and for so long they begin to take hold of us and we can't let go when we need to. So we say, all right, Lord, you can have parts of my life, but let me determine what I will give you. I'll, I'll give you that hour or so every Sunday morning when I go to church. I'll follow the golden rule, except for a few people that really bother me. I will treat other people the way I want to be treated. I'll give a certain amount of my time and money to the church, to charity, to others for the building of the kingdom. But inside, at the same time, we're saying, but this one thing, God, I, I don't think I can surrender. And maybe if we're honest, we, we don't really want to surrender that thing. And like the man who walked away from Jesus, unwilling to let go, there are things we just, we just don't think we can let go of. There's a story I remember to this day from my fifth grade teacher. Uh, every day, right before lunch, Mr. Russell, our teacher, would read aloud from a section of a book. He did this every day throughout the year. And this year, he read to us the story uh, from the book, Where the Red Fern Grows. How many of you know that story? Don't worry, I'm not going to make you cry about this. Those who know the story know what that's about. Anyway, there's this young boy in the story called Billy, 
and he has just acquired his life's dream, two hunting dogs. They are still pups, and he will use them so he can hunt raccoons. But in order to train these two pups properly, he has to have a raccoon first, and he will use the hide of that animal to train them. His grandfather tells Billy of a way he can get that first raccoon, but he tells him, Billy, you must first promise you will use this method only once and never, ever get a raccoon this way again because it's so cruel and so unfair to the animal. The grandfather instructs Billy. He finds a place where he knows raccoons often go, a log, a place where uh, the raccoon always goes by. And he drills a hole in this log, fairly small but a bit deep, and in that hole, at the bottom of this hole, round hole, he places a shiny lid from a tin can. Then in the narrow sides of the hole, Billy is shown by his grandfather how to pound in these small nails, just a little ways, and then bend the nails down at a certain angle. It will leave just the right amount of room for the raccoon to reach in with his paw, going after the lid of this can. And here's the trick. The raccoon passing by that log will do just that. He'll, he'll notice the shiny tin. He'll be so intent on getting it, he'll reach in with his paw and grab it. And once he holds on, making that fist, the size of his now enlarged fist, will prevent him from removing his paw because of the, the carefully placed nails. The poor creature is caught and will remain trapped and will be easy tray easy prey for Billy to come along, even hours and hours later, whack the poor creature on the head and have his first raccoon. I remember when I first heard this story, I, I could not believe it. Surely this is just a tall tale from the grandfather. Why wouldn't the raccoon simply let go of this worthless piece of metal and be free? And the entire fifth grade class responded the same way. No one could believe it. We raised our hands. We asked Mr. Russell, wait, could you tell that part of the story again about the, the, the raccoon and, the, and the, the tin? We asked him to, to read it again and then explain it to us again and again. All the raccoon had to do, we said, was to let go of the can. Was the animal so foolish he would stay that way, trapping himself, until the boy comes along hours, hours and hours later, and whacks him on the head? I mean, come on, who would be so foolish? Who would be so foolish? Who would hold on to something shiny but ultimately worthless at the cost of their own freedom and life? Who would do such a thing? The raccoon? The rich man from the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel? Me? You? I think a lot of us, it seems. And that's why Jesus tells this story. Jesus is calling us to new life, and we know that as Christians. Jesus is calling us to new life, now and forever. And instead of simply letting go of what we need to so that we can better embrace this amazing gift, this amazing freedom, we stand our ground, foolishly clutching with this big fist, like we're holding onto it with white knuckles, and we refuse to let go of those things we've worked for and desired after and gotten hold of, and we won't let go even for God, even for freedom, even for Jesus, even for the promise of new life. 
So we each have those things, those, those shiny, worthless things we hold on to, even though in the end we see they're no more valuable than a piece of tin compared to what Jesus is really offering us. I think the story invites each of us to really look at what we are holding on to. Your possessions, if that's your tin lid, your ambition, your anger, your fear, your need to be right, your need to be in control, that small destructive habit that you know keeps binding you and holding you back. Because I think whatever it is, it is at that point where Jesus is calling you to discover something more. I think that's the lesson of the story. Think about this this week. Pray with it. Offer this question to God, because it just may be it's at that very place where you most need to experience healing and new life. It's that place where you need to know again what life-changing grace can be in your life. That very point where we're convinced we have to keep holding on, where Jesus calls us to let go and to trust and to follow. And as disciples, what may be next just may be that next great adventure that God wants to open up for us. And it's only by letting go, by really letting go, that we get that freedom so we can continue on our journey. I think letting go simply frees us to live the way God desires for us. I think the story of this rich young man from the Gospels is really all about us, even if we're not so rich, even if perhaps we're older, even if we're not a ruler, even if we're not a man. Because as disciples, we all have those moments where we encounter Jesus. And we want to follow or follow again. We want to live in a new way and taste that again. We want to taste again what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God and to live our lives to help live that out, to build the kingdom of God. And when we do that, when we have those times in our lives, in our prayer, in our hearts, I think every disciple has those moments when she comes up to Jesus and asks, what do I need to do for the kingdom of God? Jesus, what are you asking of me? And Jesus looks at us and loves us and says to us, everything, everything. And as you read the end of the story, that's the exact message, how the story concludes. Peter comes up with the right answer, God bless his heart. He says, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus replies, yes, yes. And everyone who lets go of all things, of everything, will have it back in this life, even a hundredfold, and in the age to come have eternal life. If only that young man had stuck around a few more minutes, he would have heard Jesus and even good old Peter give him the right answer. Everything. This is what Jesus asks of us. This is what Jesus promises to us. This kind of letting go may seem impossible for us mortals, and indeed it is. But by God's good grace, it's not up to us alone. We can trust God. We can trust to give ourselves to God. We can trust God with everything. Because with God, everything is possible. Amen.